Patanjali Yoga Sutras, and I speak about this in my book, there are two types of environments. There's an external environment and an internal environment. If you do not cultivate your internal environment, then you are a direct byproduct of the external environment. Which means that if you do not spend any time on understanding yourself, on strengthening your core, on meditating, you are directly at the mercy of how people see you and how people treat you. This is episode number 95 of The Inspiring Talk with Shamal Balabji. Welcome guys to The Inspiring Talk. My name is Bijay Gautam. I'm your host for this show. Each week I interview today's most successful and inspiring personalities to help you realize your inner potential. Thank you for joining me on yet another episode of The Inspiring Talk. I'm very excited for my guest Shamal Balabji. Shamal is a sports scientist and one of the India's finest mental and strength trainer who has trained athletes like Sanya Mirza, Mahesh Bhupati and celebrities like Amitabh Bachchan. He was a strength and conditioning coach with South African Davis Cup team from 2006 to 2008. He has authored 5 books on sports science and motivation and is coming up with a new book called Breathe Believe and Balance. I had the opportunity to listen to Shamal at an event last year and I was blown away by the insights he has shared. He combines his knowledge and experience from the worlds of science, spirituality and psychology. He spent 3 years of his life as a monk and trust me This man has got a lot of wisdom to share with the world. I love Shamal's ideas on healing from emotional pain, self-love and finding a balance between body, mind, relationship and environment. And that's exactly what we're going to decode on this episode. Trust me, this is going to be one of the best episodes that you will hear on self-transformation and personal mastery. Now without taking much of your time let's welcome Shamal Pallavji Welcome back inside this episode guys I'm super honored and excited to have with me here Shamal Shamal welcome to the show Thank you very much for having me PJ I'm uh, it's been a long time coming so I'm excited to be here Yeah so uh, Shamal we met at this beautiful uh, event called Life Plugin a couple of times and uh, while I was going through my notes you know while I was preparing for this interview uh, I realized you are one of those speakers after listening to whom I ended up making a lot of notes and uh, you talk with a lot of clarity and with a lot of experience so uh, I'm sure you know a lot of my listeners who are listening to this podcast are going to experience the wisdom that you have gained over the years of being a monk being a sports scientist and then now you know getting full plunge taking the full plunge into psychological aspects of the thing so now you are bringing all these things together like the spiritual thing the psychology thing and the science right so this is going to be a really fun uh, conversation i'm really looking forward to this so you know i want to talk about your early formative years right you grew up in south africa with this systematic discrimination based on the color of the skin and i'm sure you know uh, for you it was not easy growing up with this injustice so what were some of the dominant emotions that you grew up with as a south african kid you're right you know the apartheid is what we call institutionalized segregation of people of color and uh, what was exceptionally difficult for me because i went through this entire array of emotions the first array of emotions was probably the exuberation and excitement of being a young 12 13 14 15 year old kid who loves sport like every child in india wants to dream of playing for their country Right. So that comes with a lot of excitement and and if you draw your memory back to that stage of your life you realize that what your parents said you you shunned it aside you shunned what everyone said because you had this clear dream that I want to do this and that's where I was okay and you practiced and you put in time and and with that exuberance and excitement 
there came mild levels of conflict with my parents because my parents were acutely aware of the apartheid. As a young child, I didn't know what the apartheid was. I had not faced it in many shapes and forms. I was just, we knew the term, but we weren't exposed to it because we lived in colored communities. So Indians lived together, blacks lived together, colors lived together. So you were really never exposed to it because your parents created this cocoon to keep you safe. But they knew very well that beyond this cocoon, life was not the same. So they tried to protect you. And I was adamant that I wanted to do this. So I broke away. There was this conflict and doing that. When I turned 18 and I started playing sport and I realized that I now fall into an open category and I started becoming slightly better and more skilled at the game. And when you move up a level, you're now no more competing in your small colored community. You're now competing on a national or a state level scale where you're exposed to everyone else. And that was the first inklings of apartheid and the discrimination that really exists in the system. And uh, the first time you don't understand it, the first time you go into a system, you realize, you know what? I'm like everyone else. Why, why are they treating me differently? You know, And then when you realize that they don't even know why they're treating you differently. The apartheid was in the system for so long that the young white boys who I was interacting with were not the people who created the apartheid. They were the byproduct of the apartheid. So they didn't even know themselves why they were treating you in this manner. It was just such a part of their DNA in some shape and form. And and that wasn't going to change in anything. So, so there was this anger, there was this... Uh, emotions of frustration, resentment, discontentment was coming in there. And, you know, the party did a few things. At the latter end of it, I experienced anger. I experienced anger not because of what people did to me. I experienced anger because a discrimination system, an oppressed system, there will be a few people who break through that system, BJ. And when you break through that system, the system turns you against your fellow people of color, right? So it makes you set an exceptionally unrealistic standard for your brothers and your sisters and the other people of color. So, and that was what made me angry. And I didn't see it coming. And I worked exceptionally hard. I broke away from it. And, and when I broke away and I got to a certain level, the system turned me against my people. And that's what made me really angry. And then I realized that that's that realization that's born, that you realize, you know, it's like a cancer that's eating you from inside. Unaware, you're asymptomatic to oppression. You know, that's the thing. You're completely asymptomatic. You don't understand how it's eroding your self-worth, your self-confidence, how it's festering anger and discontentment. You don't realize how the lens that you see the world changes from one of compassion and empathy to one of apathy and greed that's what it does to you you don't see this so this is probably the array of emotions that goes through an individual in an oppressed system and i was no different um so you mentioned about uh, you know anger and frustration as some of the core emotions that you felt when you were growing up and especially when you were exposed to when you came out of your on cocoon you know that your parents has created so how do you think, you know, these emotions or these angst that you felt, whether for yourself or for someone else, impact your own relationship with self in the later stages of your life? Oh, totally. It, it impacted me hugely. And one of the probably the biggest things that I can tell you, and I see so many young people of color go through this. I started working at the age of 18 because I knew I couldn't play or work. I worked 18, I worked 19, 20. I worked with two state teams. Then won, by 2002, we probably won about three competitions in state level. So I was probably one of the best physical trainers in the, in the game. In 2003, I go to the World Cup with India. We come back from the World Cup after losing in the final. I go, come back. I start working with the South African high performance team, with the South African women's cricket team, with the South African Davis Cup team. I start advising numerous companies. Throughout this entire time, you're still doubting yourself. You're still thinking, you know what? Okay, you are not asking for the fee you deserve to be paid. You're getting counterparts with one or two years of experience, but because they're white, they come with such a high level of confidence that they demand a higher level of pay. And you come with a decade of experience, but you're still doubting yourself. You still feel that I need experience because that's what they make you feel. 
They make you feel like, oh, you need experience, you need experience. And that eroded my confidence for a long period of time until maybe in my mid to early 30s when I had to make a conscious decision, BJ, where I said, enough's enough. I have enough experience. And if you want that experience, it comes at this price. Otherwise, I'm not going to work. You have to make this conscious decision to stand up to that ideology. Otherwise, that ideology will erode you. And the system is built in such a way that it feeds on that insecurity and it feeds on that lack of self-worth. You know? And as a person who was really standing alone in an isolated, oppressed South Africa, moving to India, not knowing anyone in here, I realized the ramifications of what that system had did to me, but I also realized that I need to now find the courage to silence that voice because no one else is speaking for you. No one else is standing up and saying, this guy's good, work with him, this person. Nobody does that. So this is what it did. And I found the impact of that, not necessarily the anger, but the impact of a system that made you feel that you're not good enough. I felt that for a good 10 to 15 years after I'd even left. Well, I think that's a very, very important point that you have made, Shamal, which is after, you know, when you leave that long in your life with the feeling that you are not good enough, and even when you are like really good and it's it's really difficult, as you said, right? You know, that completely erodes your confidence. And... Uh, now, for you, obviously, it was like a systematic discrimination that you went through. But even other people's life, if we look at generally on the people, they are fed by the society that you are not good enough. And we have all these different kind of voices, you know, that over the period of time erodes the self-confidence and the courage to say that, you know what, I'm worth it, right? So what, obviously, you said you wanted to stand up for yourself and say that, you know what, now I'm going to reclaim back my power and said, I'm not going to give to this emotion anymore, right? So that's the one of the things probably you have done. Is there anything that you would suggest to people who even today are living with the same feeling because of the preconditioning or some of the incident that has happened in their life going through and then leaving with the eroded confidence? How can they reclaim back their confidence? Yeah, BJ, great question. In, in Patanjali Yoga Sutras, and I speak about this in my book, there are two types of environments. There's an external environment and an internal environment. The internal environment is the mind, right? How strong your mind is. It's your self-worth, your self-respect, your self-confidence, your ability to cultivate a sense of self, right? And, and in, in spirituality, we call this Advaita philosophy, where we, it's the inquiry of the self and the development of the self. The external factors are everything that you can eat, sleep, breathe, smell, touch, hear. All of these things form your external environment. Okay. Now, if you do not cultivate your internal environment, then you are a direct byproduct of the external environment, which means that if you not spend any time on understanding yourself, on strengthening your core, on meditating, on allowing yourself to center your energy and know how to raise your vibrational energy, you are directly at the mercy of how people see you and how people treat you. Okay. Now, for anybody who's struggling with self-worth, who's struggling with self-confidence, anybody who, want, who needs to raise their vibrational energy, there is no other process but to look within. Right? Only when you feel that you are enough, only when you realize and you have that blossoming feeling that I'm not saying I'm perfect. I understand my growth journey is, is far, but right now I appreciate who I am. I respect who I am. I value and I love who I am. When you can say that to yourself, you stop seeking validation for these emotions from the outside. Right? When you stop seeking that, then you see the world with a completely different lens. And the only way, the only way to, to cultivate the self is in solitude, is through meditation, is through chanting, is through sitting in solitude, is to probably uh, journal practice gratitude, practice compassion, you've got to understand. And I talk a lot about core values. Understand what your core values are, what it is that makes up the fabric of who you are, and push that out into the world from every cell in your body. 
That's the only way. Otherwise, you are at the mercy of people who really don't care about you. And that's why the world is in the state that it is today. It's because there are people out there who don't care about you, right? But their opinion is impacting the way you feel every minute of the day. I'm aware that, you know, you went on to become monk for three years, but I'm sure, you know, a lot of people, you know, maybe they might not have uh, that kind of stuff to go and become monk, right? But still, and I'm sure they don't have to become monk to start building these things in themselves. And you have already spoken about meditation and being in solitude and start, you know, mantras and chanting, right? So are there some of the things that you'd like to tell people on what they can start doing from now to start building back their confidence and, uh, you know, start doing that inner work, as you said, you know, control the internal condition uh, so that they can create a kind of a shield to the external condition so that it doesn't really impact you. I chose to become a monk because it was the only other thing that I knew. I grew up in a very spiritual and a very pious family. My grandfather was my first guru. Okay. He taught me all the scriptures. I grew up listening and reading Bhagavad wow. Gita, Mahabharata, Ramayana. Those were my uh, bedtime stories. Okay. So when my world was crumbling around me, I knew nothing else. I didn't have the luxury of getting another job because I had no skill. I didn't have the luxury of going back to university because I had no money. I didn't have the luxury of going back to my parents because I'd already fought with them. I was literally so far backed into the corner, BJ, that my only option was to surrender to something. Mm. And the only thing I knew how to surrender to was to God. And the only place I knew where to go and seek this guidance was at that Hare Krishna temple where I'd been for a significant amount of time. And that journey was very slow and they were very beautiful in how they nurtured me and how they cultivated me and they used me in various shapes and forms. It was, it was a beautiful journey. And you're right, not everyone needs to become a monk. So what are the things that you need to do? Well, the first thing is you need to get comfortable with yourself. The one thing we've seen now in this COVID-19 lockdown is there have been two types of people. There have been people who've been exceptionally happy with lockdown. They have got nothing to complain about. I'm one of those people. Not because of the luxuries that I have, but because I'm so comfortable with myself, I don't need someone else. There's a large percentage of people. And then there's there's a percentage of people who Mm. get all their joy, happiness, and validation from others. They are struggling. Okay, so the first thing is, Learn to spend time with yourself. And don't distract yourself when you're spending time with yourself. So spending time alone and watching five hours of Netflix or gaming for five hours is not spending time with yourself. Spending time with yourself, understanding your thoughts, meditating, journaling, becoming aware of everything that you're feeling, that is what it is. Then also reading and cultivating your thoughts and goals around how to become a better version of yourself. That is what you need to do. So the first thing is you need that. The second thing is you need a practice that raises your vibrational energy. Breath work, chanting, meditation, gratitude journaling. These are practices that raise your vibrational energy. Sound healing, beautiful practices. Now, I often get asked this question, how do I stop and replace my negative thoughts? You cannot replace your negative thoughts, right? It's a linear stick. High vibrational thoughts are at the top, low vibrational thoughts at the bottom. You don't switch one for the other. You start operating at a higher plane and then the lower plane doesn't exist. So when you start cultivating positive, higher vibrational energy and thoughts, those lower ones don't impact you anymore. So it's not about, I need to stop negative and replace with positive. It's, I need to operate at a positive uh, state of mind. So these are the things that people really need to do. And and the last thing that I would encourage everyone to do is learn to express whatever you feel with compassion and empathy. The world is at a very, very precarious place right now. With the industrial revolution, with capitalism, what has happened is we've built systems in in organizations that put every single one of us into a box which means that you've got rules and regulations to follow and you've got a framework within which to operate. And those rules and regulations keep you in a box. So within that box, you do not have the luxury to express your thoughts and your feelings about anything else. So what you're doing is you're suppressing it. 
any idea, any thought you have, you've not expressed it. Now, this has happened for such a significant period of time that what has happened? You see, if you don't express, the brain stops thinking because the brain has no skin in the game with coming up with an authentic original idea because there's no avenue to release it. So when capitalism stopped our expression of thought, it killed our creativity. Now, for us to heal ourselves, we live in the 21st century. War is not an option. Going out with a gun and shooting people is not an option. We have got to innovate our way out of problems, whether it's emotional healing problems, whether it's climate change problems, whether it's water, whether it's poverty, whatever problem, we have to come up with innovative solutions. And innovative solutions are a byproduct of creative thinking. Creative thinking is a byproduct of expression. So if you want to heal yourself, if you want to discover who you are as a person, if you want to contribute to making this planet a better place, start with finding the courage to express how you feel. Start with finding the courage to express how you feel with compassion and empathy. That is probably the most important exercise or tip I could give anyone. Those were great tips, uh, Shamil. Just to summarize, uh, you know, the tips that Shamil just, uh, you know, shared. Number one, spend time with yourself in solitude to understand your thoughts and emotions. And uh, number two, operate at the high energy right with the chanting or mantra and sound healing and so so many you know journaling as Shaimul mentioned so and the third one express what you feel because I think suppressing is I, I can so much relate with that and that's something that I started realizing that I was not speaking my heart out and suppressing a lot right um, you know whether that's just in communicating with my business partner or just sharing my ideas across but the more and more I realized and I must tell each one listening to this right now it takes a courage and it simultaneously says with empathy and a compassion that you want to do that because at the same time you don't want to hurt another person whom you are sharing you don't have to be blunt when you are sharing what you are feeling right it can be done with the compassion and empathy but when you do that I think you are allowing other person and I'm going to, we are going to talk in more detail about the relationship and how you can form the more stronger relationship, you know, uh, in, in a moment. But, but when you do that, it really liberates you and you also feel like, you know what, I have done my part and, uh, and I have put it out there. So, but it's a difficult one, but I would say it's totally worth trying, uh, you know, sharing what you feel out, whether it's to your partner or whether uh, it's to a friend or to your parents or whatever. Right. So, yeah, uh, Gautam, you, you've hit it right. And I think it's a good time for us to remind our uh, listeners that everything in life has the greatest inertia in the yeah. beginning. Everything, right? So like you said, we need courage. But the courage and strength you're going to call off in the beginning is going to feel like a lot. And after six months, it's not going to feel like that because you're going to have that momentum. Whether you're learning a musical instrument, whether you're True. learning to sing, whether you're learning to play a sport, whether you are healing, everything has inertia in the beginning, right? If it didn't have inertia, we probably wouldn't appreciate that journey as much as we really do. So embrace it is the thing I should, we should remind everyone. That's awesome. All right, so uh, switch a little bit of a gears here, Shaimal. Now, you know, as you mentioned, you wanted to become a cricketer, but you ended up being a sports scientist. And uh, now, you know, um, in the past decade or so of being a sports scientist, you have worked with the likes of Sanya Mirza. So for better understanding of my audience, could you quickly share what does a sports scientist does? So a sports scientist is we look at performance enhancement. And, and my particular job is various sports scientists would focus on various areas. Okay, They're looking at data, they're doing physical testing, biomechanics, all sorts of assessments. So predominantly what we do is we analyze an entire gambit of data and we decide where and what should we change to get the probably the greatest potential for improvement in there. So we're looking at single metrics. I particularly look at uh, exercise physiology, fitness testing markers. I look at biomechanics markers. I've gone into internal medicine where I'm looking at gut bacterial and genetics markers as well. Uh, but you know, the host of markers can be anything. And, and the secret is to really understand what you want to change because sports science is exactly like... Uh, any other field. You could be so inundated with data that you could be lost in it. So it's important to understand what we're looking for. And uh, and that's what a sports scientist does. We really hone in on that single variable for performance change. 
That's awesome. As you mentioned, right, you work with a lot of performance metrics. And uh, if, if I can just put it in a word, then you or maybe in a couple of words is essentially you are helping your athletes to unlock their potential, right? With all the looking at the different metrics and looking at their, you know, psychology and looking at their, uh, you know, data and so on and so forth. Uh, in, in an essence, what you are doing there is unlocking their potential, right? So, uh, if we have to, if you have to derive some of the lessons from the sports about unlocking one's potential, and that can be implemented on my listeners' life. So, what would be some of those lessons when it comes to unlocking one's potential that we can derive from your experience working with athletes? We won't really talk about it in terms of unlocking one's potential. Let's just talk about uh, what are the main things that I've learned in sport, and and what anyone can really implement in their life, and and. For me, there are probably about three or four things, right? That I think if everyone imbibes this in their life, as a byproduct of imbibing this, you will fully tap into who you are and become that person. The first one is uh, all athletes see themselves as a student of their art, okay? Which means that they invest a significant amount of money in hiring people like myself and coaches. I mean, Roger Federer, for example, would have a weekly a ticket bill of about $20,000 in paying his entire, that's a week, you know, his expenses. That's on a low end. You know, it could go significantly higher as well. Why is he investing that much? Why would he invest that much money? He's already number one in the world because these people are going to keep him at number one and then make him better. Okay. So professional athletes see themselves as a student of the art, which means we're always willing to learn we're always surrounded by people who are helping us identify our weaknesses, our strengths, and giving us methodology and techniques on how to do this. So lesson number one, if you want to go anywhere in life, see yourself as a student of your art. And a student of your art means learn from multiple fields. For example, as a sports scientist working, you know, if I wanted to bring in a higher service-orientated culture, into my team, right? I'm not going to look at a sporting ecosystem. I'm going to look at an ecosystem where service is exceptionally important. So I may go into hospitality and look for it. When I'm looking at how to analyze data, I may go to a, uh, a financial analyst whose job is data and look at that. Look at what, how do you analyze it? So we learn from every possible field. That's how you get better. The second thing is, When you work with athletes, to be the best in the world, you need to operate at a very high level of confidence, right? Sometimes bordering on arrogance, I say. But humility is the foundation of learning, okay? So you need to understand how you will and how the people in your system move you between arrogance and humility. Because if you walk into a sports field humble, you'll be killed. You've got no chance, absolutely zero chance, right? If you walk onto a practice field arrogant, you're done because you won't learn anything. You're going to think you know everything. So shifting between arrogance and humility, arrogance, humility is a secret to life. Now, there is no formula to this. For me, the most important thing I tell people is knowing yourself is exceptionally important. Knowing who can push you out of your comfort zone is even more important. So you need to invest time in knowing yourself and also knowing who's that person in your ecosystem that can move you from arrogance to humility. So that's point number two. Point number three is fail fast. You know, when I tell my professional athletes, if you ask not just my profession, any professional athlete, you go and say, listen, you practiced for an hour. Can you tell me how many times you failed in this hour? He'll start laughing at you. He has no idea. And if you ask, how would you define a failure? He says, how many times did you want to execute something and it didn't go according to plan? Mm. That's a failure. Okay. How many times? He'll start laughing. He has absolutely no idea. If you ask him to guess, he'll give you hundreds. He'll say hundreds. Okay. Why are we saying this? You see, there's a beautiful relationship between Mm. failure, execution, and success. The more you try, the more you're going to fail. It's a byproduct of it. The more you try, the more you're going to fail. The more you fail the more comfortable you're going to become with failure. The more comfortable you become with failure, the more you're going to try. And the more you try, the more successful you're going to be. So this is our mantra in sport, fail fast. This is what we do. We go out there not worrying about how much we're going to get right. We just go out there trying so much that 
failure becomes your best friend. You see, Bruce Lee said this as well beautifully. He says that if you want to win, first you have to learn how to lose. Okay, this is the secret. And and then the one other thing that I tell people is, you know, I said anything in life is a byproduct of habits repeated consecutively over days, days, months, years. Nobody knows when you get fit. Nobody knows when you get smart. Nobody knows a particular moment when you shift up here. It's just a byproduct of all of this. Most people don't have the tenacity to stick to a habit for a prolonged period of time. The reason they don't is because they do not have enough skin in the game to make that a habit, to transfer that from the conscious mind to the subconscious mind. So the reason why professional athletes have that skin in the game is because we understand our penalty for failure. We understand the the penalty of making this mistake. And because that penalty is so in our face, we have skin in the game to correct it. Most people do not have enough skin in the game. And that's why habits don't transfer or skills don't transfer to habits and move from the conscious to the subconscious. So build in penalties for failure and you'll find that you will cultivate a beautiful sense of accountability and responsibility. Those are the two key words I would tell everyone. If you don't have accountability, if you don't have responsibility in your life, you will achieve nothing. And accountability and responsibility ensure one thing. They ensure preparedness. That means that you approach everything being fully and highly prepared to execute to the best of your ability. So this would be a general sum up of what should move forward. Wow. I think, uh, you know, uh, there are a couple of things that I've picked from. So the first thing that I would like to acknowledge is the whole thing about arrogance to humility, right? So the other day I was, you know, watching this conversation that you had with uh, Abhishek Bachchan about how you worked with his Kabaddi team players, right? So where Abhishek Bachchan said, Shamal took them to meditate. And now I want my Kabaddi players to be arrogant out there, angry people who are going out there and, you know, beating out there in the field. And well, here's the guy who is saying, you know, let's go and meditate, right? So now, you know, it makes it very clear that, you know, what you were trying to do there, like moving them from the arrogance to humility. Um, that's, a, that's a great, great suggestion there. And also the second point about, you know, failure to execution to success, that was beautifully explained. Now, you know, in, in this sports, as you said, right, the penalty is like really high. If you fail delivering out there, then stick is much higher. But on our day-to-day life, you know, it's not as usual and that's why we fail to build in the discipline, right? So is there anything that you'd like to give, uh, like for instance, in your regular life things that you want to set up or uh, for the normal people who want to accomplish certain goals because they are, you know, accountability is something that you got to set, right? So I myself find accomplishing things much higher when I have someone whom I'm accountable to, whom I'm promising that I'm going to deliver this and, you know, who keeps check on me saying that, hey, what happened to the thing that you said that you're going to do? Right? That's one of the things. But are there anything that, you know, is a penalty, some crazy things that you do or that you recommend to people? I mean, I wouldn't recommend any of what I do to people, to be honest, because, you know, I'm a bit crazy in how I operate. Yeah, I want to hear some of those. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, you've, you've hit an important point where when you have someone to be who you're accountable to, your chance of sticking to that process increases the probability of sticking. And this is what we've seen with personal trainers and running coaches. When you know you have a running buddy and a coach to meet in the morning, you're more likely to get up at 6 a.m. If it's yourself, you'll cancel it. So that is super important. So for those people who are starting off, find someone who you can be accountable to. And you know, I mentor hundreds of people on Instagram. I've never met them in my life. But you know, because of them following me because they've been messaging me regularly. I make myself that person in their life that they need to be accountable to. So I tell them every single day, this is the task you need to do. And every single day you need to DM me and tell me that you've done it. Right. And I can't check. I don't, I wouldn't know if you lied. So this relationship is based on honesty, but if you value my time, I'm not taking a single cent from you. I'm never going to meet you. You can lie. But if you truly invested in your own growth, then you wouldn't lie. Right. And, and people message me. Sometimes it starts off with them messaging me 10 o'clock in the morning because they woke up super excited and they got it done early. And then and as a month or two months go by, it moves to 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Then I nudge them a little bit and get a reminder. 
there are few people who will send me a message at like 11.55 p.m. at night before the clock turns to the next day because like they forgot it, so much has happened, but they stuck to it. So you're right. Having someone you're accountable for will really nudge you in that right direction. But I have moved to a state in my life where I am the person I need to be accountable to. That's where I've come to. I've come to that stage in my life where I don't need an, another yeah. person to push me. I push myself. I set my own barriers, my own penalties for failure to cultivate myself because I've come down the hard road realizing that I cannot always rely on an external source. So some of the things, like for example, when I learned to become a writer, I promised myself that I will not eat until I don't put down on paper between 1,500 to 2,500 words. Right. Sometimes it would go to three o'clock. I would not write or procrastinate. But if I don't eat, then that's working. And then that started happening. And within 30 days, I would wake up early in the morning. By 10, 11 o'clock, it's done. I wasn't harsh on myself saying that these are the words that need to be perfect in principle. I just said, cultivate the habit of writing, getting your thoughts on paper. That's what I did. I did that. I lived in the Hare Krishna temple and one of the rules of the temple is we need to chant 16 rounds of Maha Mantra a day. Okay. Now we have to build in a penalty for failure into that as well. You know, so I did that, you know, initially when I lived in the temple, if I didn't finish eight rounds, eight rounds would be at least an hour, hour, 10 minutes of chanting. I wouldn't have breakfast. So things like that. I exercise every day for about an hour. Okay. Uh, if I don't exercise, I'm not allowed to leave the house in the night. So, you know, so I build these things in. Then I have, I bring in micro giving into every single thing. So the micro giving, I work with an organization called B1G1, buy one, give one. So for every email I send, I would donate money to a, a charity that f gives seeds to farmers or gives water to families in Cambodia. Uh, for every kilometer I run, I donate milk to a child in a rural village. You know? So in this way, uh, the micro giving is also a way to push me a little bit harder. So every time I'm sending a mail, I'm, I'm like, you know, I work harder because I try to get 25 mails out in a day. Those 25 mails ensure that someone else has benefited through my work. When I run it's easier to push myself to do that extra kilometer because the benefit of that extra kilometer could could be a family saving someone's life. So, you know, these are ways wow. that I bring things into my life. I think that's a great piece of advice there. You know, I'm really fascinated with this micro giving concept of, you know, every email that I sent or every kilometer that I run. That's a, you know, great idea there, Shamal. So now I want to talk about challenges. So I'm aware of some of the challenges that you have, you know, went through in the recent past of starting your own company and then, you know, being thrown out of it. So could you share, uh, you know, a little bit about the challenge that you went through and then we'll talk about the lessons later on. Yeah, so, so the challenge was I became an entrepreneur in 2012. I set up a company called the Heal Institute, uh, which was India's first real sports science and physical therapy institute. It grew quite rapidly. We eventually got about eight to 10 centers around the country. And then I was looking for some investment in, you know, I signed a term sheet with an organization. Uh, they committed to a certain amount of capital by a certain date. That capital didn't come in. And now once that term sheet was signed, I had to go and uh, I couldn't go back into the market to ask for more capital. And, and every time you went, you know, money that's supposed to come in February would come in October. If you were given, promised $100,000, you were given 10 lakhs and you had to make do with it. You know, uh, money was drip fed. There was so much that was really uh, became anchoring points to, to the growth of that company. And then they wanted to pivot the business completely into a, a different direction. And as the main founder of that business, I was the person who was solely accountable and responsible for it. And uh, what had happened is that when I raised this money, I signed the term sheet with a fund. Uh, when the fund gave me, we signed for a significant amount of money. We signed uh, for something like, it may have been about three crores or something. And uh, they gave me some 50 lakhs or 75 lakhs, I can't remember. But they gave it to me out of an NBFC of theirs. So not the fund. Okay. And on that NBFC, when that money finally came to us, it, it had already been about five months past when it was due. So my business was really bleeding. We needed it. As, an, as the founder, I was desperate to get it. So I had to sign it. And one of the terms in that was that I am the guarantor of that money. 
So even though the money was given to the company and then what had happened was um, they defaulted on all further payments that didn't. And then they sent me a notice to repay that money back. And uh, I, I didn't have that capital to repay it because I couldn't repay it from the business and I couldn't repay it myself. I wasn't drawing a salary. So they took me to court and I held a significant uh, amount of equity. And uh, I gave them the equity for the for to just to write off that that loan. And that's how I kind of lost my business. Uh, which I'd built. And, and it was very sad because a fully executed term sheet would have given them about 15%. And at the time of them taking everything, I probably owned about 70% of the business. Which I took. But just to avoid litigation and uh, doing all of that, I decided to sort of step away amicably. And, uh, and that was something that was quite difficult. You know, I, I, it took me a long time to heal and recover from that, to understand that it took me almost a year and a half before I started something else. I now have a digital media business with the, uh, my friend who passed away, Samir Bangara, A.R. Rahman, and Shekhar Kapoor. But that was a phenomenally difficult time, yeah. I'm sure it's a very, very difficult for a lot of people to deal with, uh, you know, something like that emotionally. And, and in your journey of healing from that particular incident, is there any important lesson that you'd like to share with the people who might be dealing emotionally, maybe, you know, of loss of someone or maybe, you know, loss in the business or generally in the life if they are dealing with some sort of emotional healing that they are going through are there any lessons that you'd like to share with people there's a few lessons one is i'm a massive believer in the practice of meditation or chanting or breath work something that centers you and stills you because you will not understand the power it has in your life until you're doing it every day and you cannot do it and expect it to work for you at a time when you need it if you've not done it all the time so meditation mindfulness really helped me at that time to still my mind and to be able to understand what I was going. The second thing is that when you're going through something emotionally, you're going to hit rock bottom. Your vibrational energy is going to be one of anger, of frustration, of discontentment, of sadness. You're going to be crying. You're going to be all of these things. Your vibrational energy is going to be rock bottom. Okay. It is so important for you to default back to that practice that you know to raise your vibrational energy. You will never change the situation if you do not change your vibrational energy. And, and that was when the situation really, in a beautiful way, it healed itself. Was when I sat down in my house for seven days, never left, just meditated and chanted for seven days, sending positive energy to everyone involved in the situation, everything. And then just miraculously, it changed. It, within two weeks, everything was sorted out. Okay. So raising your vibrational energy is super important. Stilling the mind to be able to understand and process what you're going through and why you're going through is super important. And these are probably two of the key things that will help anyone here. Super. Also, you know, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, self-love and falling in love with yourself. So where does one begin? I mean, how does one begin in this journey of self-love? Yes, the journey of self-love begins with understanding yourself. And when you understand yourself, what differentiates? It's, a, it's an interesting question. Ask yourself, what differentiates you from another person? Uh, let's assume two males or two females are trying to compare themselves to each other. We have the same blood, we have the same bones, we have the same nerves, we have the same veins. Physically, we're exactly the same. What defers us? Our consciousness defers us. Our consciousness is a byproduct of our virtues. Our virtues differentiate how we interact with our external environment around us. So if you want to fall in love with yourself, the first place to start is to understand what is the fabric, that, the conscious fabric that you're made up of. So that's where you start. You start by understanding what are the core values and virtues that are important to me. And then you fall in love with that. You know? So for example, let's just say uh, loyalty is a core value that's super important to you. Okay. Then you can proudly fall in love with yourself by saying that, you know what, I may be 10 other things, but one thing that I am is 100% loyal. I'm loyal to a business partner. I'm loyal in a relationship. And that's the thing that I love about myself. So when you understand the conscious fabric of yourself, that's how you start falling in love with yourself. And that's, you understand what it is that's holding you together with everyone else and what you can give to everybody else as well. So that's the, the only place to start. 
I think it's interesting you say that because I ask the question about self-love to a lot of guests. And, uh, you know, this is totally different way and perspective to look at self-love because I think when you really start appreciating your value, then I think you, you start appreciating yourself because those are the values that you have within yourself, right? So are you saying the first step to this is identifying the value or maybe start imbibing some of those values? First thing is to identify your values are already there. Your value system is already deeply ingrained in you. For example, Vijay, one of your values, if I ask you, and, and I have about six questions which I get people to answer, and then we pull away these answers and we discover our core values. One of the core values that may be in your fabric is perhaps knowledge or perhaps uh, being innovative, right? For example, that's a core value that, that you, which means that, you know, what you can fall in love with with yourself is the fact that you like pulling knowledge, you like being innovative and trying new things. That simple value there will help you cultivate a heightened sense of love for yourself. So what do you love about BJ? What do you love? You love mm. the fact that, you know, I have such an inquiring mind that I'm willing to explore the depths of knowledge the depths of my consciousness to grow mm-hmm. that's your core value so that's what you love you don't love your hair and your body and your skin that's that's superb because that's changing so when people tell you to go and you know love yourself for who mm. you are right now who are you is the question you have to ask you're yeah. not the skin and you're not this body and you're not this this is changing if you love that that will change when people tell you go and spoil yourself you can only spoil yourself that much there's only so much retail therapy and only so much of time you can go in the spa and those are very temporary and fleeting right? to truly cultivate self-love within you you have to go deep within yourself and the differentiating factors behind you is the fabric of who you are as a person and who you are as a person is a byproduct of all the pain you've gone through your whole life you know for example a high work ethic is a core value of mine right that hard work ethic was instilled in me by the apartheid how was it instilled because there was such distinct double standards for people of color that we had to work 10 times harder than everyone else having to work 10 times harder in an oppressed society cultivated in me a work ethic now that I appreciate work ethic in myself. When someone says, what do you love about yourself? I love that I persevere. I love that I have the tenacity to take anything on. And when I appreciate a few people around me, some of them I appreciate in that work ethic. But to appreciate this work awesome. ethic, I have to go back and I have to be grateful for what the they did to me. So core values is not just, it's identifying the value mm. and it's understanding the pain that built that value. And appreciating the pain that built that value, knowing that it instilled the value in in you that is the fabric of who you are, that holds you together with every single cellular organism on this planet. So Shamal, now, you know, you are coming up with a book, Breathe, Believe and Balance. What's your definition of balance? Oh, my definition of balance is, uh, to start off with my definition of balance, I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't symmetry. It isn't. Uh, two-dimensional. So that idea of a wing scale or a seesaw is not balance. Balance is asymmetrical. And I can tell you this because I've studied cosmology, I've studied sacred geometry, I've studied golden ratio, I've studied everything. The balance in the universe is asymmetrical. In the book, I also give a beautiful example of rabbits and foxes in the wild, right? You know, you could have a hundred foxes that maintains the balance of 2,000 rabbits, Okay, they don't need to be perfectly symmetrical. A hundred maintains the balance of a thousand or two thousand, right? In our body, a little bit of insulin maintains a higher blood sugar level, right? So asymmetry brings on balance. So the first thing that balance is, is balance is asymmetrical. Balance is fluid and dynamic, which means it's constantly always changing. Don't look for anything that's static, okay? And balance is the point in your life where your ego is zero. And that's the point that gives you the best chance to discover who you truly are. That's my understanding. Beautifully put, beautifully put. So Shamal, then, you know, in this world, how does someone find the balance between the 
material and the spiritual world because you have experience uh, you know of the spiritual world as well and uh, obviously the material world as well how does one find that balance the balance is isn't really between the material world and the spiritual world you know the spiritual world can be your balance or your counterbalance for the material world having come from a deeply spiritual uh, background myself uh, the bhagavad gita tells us that the physical world or the material world is an illusion so based on this you know we can really understand that we should cultivate more energy into that spiritual development of self but my model of balance speaks on four things body mind relationships environment so for the average person let's first talk about that let's first talk about the cultivation of that material world body mind relationships environment so growth happens only outside of your comfort zone we all know this right you got to be pushed outside your comfort zone to really grow the thing is that these are the four verticals that everyone needs to optimize to truly grow the thing is you cannot optimize all four at the same time you cannot push yourself out of your comfort zone in all four verticals at the same time the body and the mind will not be able to sustain that you can push yourself out of your comfort zone in one vertical maximum two at a time but what's really important to understand is the vertical that you're pushing yourself out of is one the second thing is where are you absolutely anchored and what's your anchoring point that will help you come back to center if things don't go well there okay so the first key point about balance is you know knowing where you want to grow needs to balance with knowing where you are anchored so you could be anchored in a very healthy family relationship which allows you to push yourself out at work you can be anchored at work and know and trust everything there which allows you to push yourself spiritually where you can take more time off yeah so you have to have this balance between it now the balance between your question of the spiritual world and the material world is to understand that spirituality is a cultivation of the internal environment and the cultivation of the internal environment will dictate how you respond to the external environment and that's a directly proportional relationship so the balance between it is not cannot be quantified in terms of time cannot be quantified in terms of uh, minutes and days and who you spend time with it's an internal journey right and you can only gauge how much of time you need to spend on it by how you are responding to your external environment so for example you know right now if i get thrown i've had a very tough emotional 2 3 weeks you know i've lost a friend i've lost my spiritual master my father's in hospital as we speak emotionally it's exceptionally tough for me but i still spend the same amount of time meditating to still my mind right now i can spend that same amount of time because i've invested so much of time in understanding how to still the mind and do that if i didn't invest this time over a larger period of time if i wasn't i didn't invest so much of time in cultivating the internal environment that external environment would have completely shattered and thrown me now what is my metric for balance here my metric for balance in how much time i can spend internally is how am i responding externally that's awesome so yeah absolutely and uh, looking back at our one hour long conversation and i can see how a lot of things is getting back to controlling our you know inner environment and stealing our mind understanding ourselves and going deeper within ourselves and it's nothing about going external and trying to fix someone else but it's just going inwards and trying to fix ourselves which is uh, i think the beautiful uh, aspect of our conversation uh, so shamal before we move to the enlightening round i want to ask you one more question so what are some of the questions you find yourself asking yourself when you are going through the painful situations the main question that i ask myself is what am i feeling right now am i feeling it in relation to my version of reality or reality i ask myself what would the other person be perceiving it and how would someone be perceiving this situation then i sometimes do a very interesting exercise you know i get a dear friend and i narrate the story to them okay one time just one time i narrate the story to them and then i ask them to tell me that story back again okay the same story that i tell obviously very often there parts of the story that they forget okay and they tell me something else and and what i gauge from that process is i learn what is important and what's not important 
whatever they've forgotten is not important to the story. So I'm getting lost in emotions and narratives that don't wow. matter. Right. When someone's giving me, they're going to retell that story with the most important elements. Okay. So that gives me very clear biofeedback on where I'm getting distracted and where I'm not getting distracted. So this is a simple exercise that I also use to uh, for myself a lot. But I spend a significant amount of time on a day-to-day basis just understanding myself, journaling, meditating, asking questions, reading, testing analogies. I'm also, as a scientist, I come from this mindset of my job is to question the answers, not answer the questions. So I come from very inquiring mind. In fact, in my book, Breed, Believe, Balance, I challenge a lot of existing philosophy. I challenge uh, Setsik Mihaly, you know, and Stephen Kotler's flow theory. I challenge Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory. So there are tons of theories that I completely dissect and break down and I challenge it in my book because uh, that for me is growth. And, And when I put something out publicly, Vijay, I'm telling the world that this is my thought but I'm also welcoming you to challenge me because I approach conflict and challenge as a potential avenue for growth. And I think that's probably one of my secrets is that, you know, when you cultivate deep emotional relationships with the people, and mm. you can't have these with many, with maybe four or five people, right? When you cultivate that, you can challenge and you can confront with confidence, knowing that the relationship may not be severed, but whatever comes out of it helps both people grow. We've got to move to that place in the world where we see confrontation and conflict as a point to clarify and a point of growth. Wow, that's awesome. I think even the exercise, the simple exercise that you have shared, uh, I, I think that's like a really powerful in a way to also see what's important, right? And a lot of times, as you said, we are a lot of time, spending a lot of time thinking about things that doesn't matter. And, uh, and when you are hearing the story back, then you know that, oh, that really doesn't matter. And I've consumed a lot by those emotions. That's a really powerful one. Uh, so now, you know, it's time for the enlightening round where I'm going to ask you some questions. And uh, it's kind of a rapid fire where you can, you know, share the answers as uh, short as possible. Yeah. Are you ready for this? Okay. Yeah. yeah what totally. inspires you to do everything that you do? The need to help and, and serve others and the need to be surrendered uh, to my spiritual master and Sri Krishna. Which one daily habit do you believe has been game changer for you in your success journey? Meditation. Obviously. Chanting. Uh, so what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received in your life? The best piece of advice I've received is uh, fail fast. Undoubtedly, fail fast. Keep trying. What was the one wrong belief you have held for the longest period of time in your life about yourself? That I am not worthy, that I need to get more experience and that what I have to give the world is, uh, doesn't have value yet. What's your message to the people who are holding that belief right now? My, my thing is that every single person, whether you're a student, whether you've got 50 years of experience, irrespective of who you are, every single one of us out here is unique in our perspective and our understanding. Every single person in that uniqueness has something very beautiful to give to the world. And up until you don't come to this realization and accept this realization that I have something to give this world, right? You will always feel hollow. And no amount of material success or material possessions can fill that void. And no two people on earth are exactly the same from a genetic and a cellular level, which means that God has created us uniquely, which means you have something beautiful and unique. Give it to What do you want to be remembered for? Just serving, being kind and serving those who need it. And Shamal, I know that you read a lot of book and, uh, you know, asking for a couple of books, you know, it might be difficult for you to pick, but what are a book or two, if you'd like to share, you know, that has influenced you in the recent past? In the recent past, I mean, the book that I constantly go to is, uh, the, my first default book is the Bhagavad Gita, but now I'm currently studying and reading an, an interesting book. It's called the Uddhava Gita. So the Bhagavad Gita was a, a conversation between Krishna and Arjuna mm-hmm. on the battle of Kurukshetra. The conversation was uh, four sentences explained in 700 verses over 45 minutes. The Uddhava Gita is the conversation between Krishna and his good friend Uddhava before he left 
the planet. And this is a more elaborate explanation of how uh, life should be lived on this earth. So Uddhva Gita is one. I, I like uh, the autobiography of a yogi. Okay, I read a lot of works from uh, Neem Karoli Baba, Haidekan Baba. These are spiritual works that I do quite like. I've been studying a lot of Japanese Bushido philosophy recently. I'm, I'm a big believer in Bushido philosophy. I'm uh, reading a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy from various guys. I'm looking at uh, a Beck, Freud, uh, Alfred Adler's approach to cognitive behavioral psychology is, is very fascinating to me. I'm doing a lot of work and reading a lot, which I talk about in the book of uh, Jeffrey Young's schema therapy, uh, which is subconscious programs built in early childhood. And now trying to find the balance between spirituality and healing subconscious programs, which is work, if anyone's interested, I, I would direct them to people like uh, Daniel Goldman, the founder of uh, Emotional Intelligence, his wife, Tara Bennett Goldman, uh, very, very beautiful authors. There's a beautiful researcher named uh, John Kabat-Zinn, who speaks about mindfulness, and he's created the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy program. Beautiful program to use the rational mind and a mindfulness program to heal yourself. People like uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and uh, uh, Sharon Salzberg and, and Thich Nhat Hanh have also created beautiful works out there that uh, can help you in understanding yourself as the point, as a reference point for growth. Super. Shabal, if we were to start this journey all over again, what are those three things that you would do differently or wish you would have uh, known earlier in your life? If I had to start this entire journey again, uh, I would probably have started becoming an entrepreneur earlier. I would have uh, stood up for myself a little bit sooner and I would have told myself to have the courage to express how I feel. Yeah, Shamal, I have one last question that I want to ask to you. But before I ask you that question, uh, first, for the listeners who are listening to this podcast, I can't recommend enough Shamal's book, Breathe, Believe, Balance, that's releasing on 3rd of August. I'm such a huge admirer of Shamal's work, the passion that Shamal puts on his work, on his talk to serve the people, the world with his gifts and with with his own stories and experiences that he have gained from a lot of from the spirituality from the sports world and from the psychology now and uh, you know it's it's always fascinating to hear some of the great ideas and i'm sure in the past one hour or so of our conversation you must have sensed you know the kind of stuff shamal does and uh, the book breathe believe and balance coming out on 3rd of august go ahead and it's available for pre-order already just go ahead and grab your copy this is definitely gonna worth your time and uh, you know time uh, reading the book and i can you know knowing shamal for almost two years now and knowing his work that's something that i can absolutely promise so shamal if people would like to reach out to you connect to you and learn more from you what would be the best possible way so, I mean, you can write to me. I'm on all social media platforms, probably most active on Instagram, at uh, Shamal, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L. Uh, you can go to my website, which is shamal.com, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L, and drop me an email. Uh, it'll come directly to me. I'll be able to respond there. Uh, obviously, my Facebook page and my uh, Twitter pages are also where you can get in touch with me. These are my platforms. Everything will be found at, at Shamal, S-H-A-Y-A-M-A-L right across the board. And uh, and yes, and I, I encourage people to reach out. You know, I'm, I'm someone who really looks forward to getting feedback, looks forward to engaging with people. So uh, to everyone out there who, if there's anything that uh, you heard that resonates with you, if there's anything that you want to get more information or comments and just please uh, connect with me. Awesome. Anytime. And also don't forget to check him out on Instagram. I link all his you know social media and website and link to get the book on the description below. But check him out on Instagram, particularly because he posts crazy amount of content, so much of wisdom and knowledge just on that one page. Uh, there's so much that you can learn from that page. Just go and check that out. So Shamal, here's the last question for you. Imagine that you are standing on a stage of the largest stadium that has ever been built in the history of the world. And this stadium has got the capacity to hold millions of people and every single seat on that stadium is occupied. And there you are on stage and you have been given only one minute of the time to share the most important lesson that you have learned in your life. What would be your message? I would tell people that from the moment you're born, 
to the moment you die, everything's going to feel like a battle because for every one person who believes in you, there are 10 people out there who are invested in making sure that you don't believe in yourself. And my message to them is you are amazing and everything in your life can manifest. Everything that you dream of can shift, but you have to start to believe that you're worthy of it. And I'm standing you and telling you from experience that for the longest time in my life, I didn't feel like I was worthy of it. And it kept a hole in my heart so big, I can't even begin to explain it. And of the millions of people listening to me, I know that 99% of you have that hole in your heart. And I can tell you right now that if I can heal it, you can heal it. And believe. That's all you need to do. You are worthy of it and you can heal yourself. It has been a phenomenal having this conversation with you, Shyamal. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Bijay. It's long with you and, and I loved it thoroughly. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Inspiring Talk podcast. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, GeoSavan, or wherever you get a podcast from. I hope you learned something or got some inspiration. You can take a screenshot of this episode and post it on your Instagram story. When you do that, don't forget to tag Shamal Erdaret, Shamal, and me, Erdaret, Vijay Speaks. You can access the show notes of this episode by visiting theinspiringtalk.com forward slash 9595. Thank you so much for listening. I'll catch you in the next. Now, go out there and do something inspiring.